0: This morning, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open uh, to Mark chapter 7. If you want to grab the Bible from the, the tray down in front of you, we are going to pick up this week right where we left off last week. If you are here with us in worship, we talked last week about the encounter that Jesus has at the beginning of Mark chapter 7, the first 23 verses, with the Pharisees, and this challenge that is not uncommon in his ministry for them to understand the heart of God's law. In the aftermath of that encounter, we turn to this encounter with uh, the Syrophoenician woman that we're about to read from. And it is a startling shift in the, the narrative. And in our I think a challenge in our understanding of of who Jesus is. So let's, let's jump right into the scripture this morning. Again, Mark chapter 7, beginning actually at verse 24. Jesus left that place, and that's the place where he had just had this encounter with the Pharisees, which we talked about last week. And he went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as... She heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit, came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, For such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Friends, sisters, we pray, hear God's blessing on the reading of his word. Let us pray. Lord, speak to our, our hearts Help us to hear in these moments that we worship together. Be open to the, the voice of your Holy Spirit as it speaks. And as we seek to understand your call upon each of our lives and your invitation through Christ our Lord. Amen. If um, if you happen to, to be on Facebook, you may have seen um, a post I, I put on there yesterday. You may not have, but... But I commented that uh, yesterday afternoon, I said, um, I was in my happy place. I was in my happy place for the very superficial reason that college football started yesterday. (laughs) And I was able, because I had a a Saturday afternoon where I didn't have anything officially on the calendar, and and I think I've shared before, but my... uh, my Saturday routine generally is, is to carve out some time during the day in which the sermon goes from paper to, to a mental imprint, the, the method I use to try to uh, internalize the message so I can be prepared to, for these moments together. And my favorite time of the year is now because when I have those Saturdays free, I, I don't have a man cave. Um, we don't have the room for it. But I have, as I shared last week, I've got kind of the man chair in the bedroom. And uh, I'll just go there, and I put the computer on my lap. And on this, se- this season that we're in, TV goes on and college football, basically, until my brain shuts off at night. And, uh, and so that's, that's what I was doing. So I was watching football, I was preparing. And at the same time, because next week it gets even better, because next week we get to go from college football on Saturday to NFL football on Sunday. And so it's just a wonderful time of the year. You know, kids that get excited about Christmas, I get excited about football season. And, uh, but yesterday, if you're a fan of the NFL, there were significant things that were happening. The significant thing yesterday in the um, National Football League is that teams were making their roster cuts. They were cutting down to their final 53. NFL teams carry 53 players on the roster. And so those conversations were happening where players are called into the coach's office, and they're, and they're cut, and they're let go, I think. I think they cut down probably 20 players yesterday, each team, uh, the Bucs, and and included. But the interesting thing about that is that isn't necessarily the end of the road for some of those players because each NFL team carries what's called a um, practice squad. I don't know if you're familiar with the practice squad, but there are 10 guys who are on the team. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers have 10 guys on their practice squad, and they put the guys on for a number of reasons, but they're members of the team. They're there all week, they go to practices, they go to meetings, they have a space in the locker room. For all uh, intents and purposes, they're part of the team, except on Sundays. On Sundays, they don't dress out. and Sundays, they cannot play. They're usually not even on the sideline. Most of the time, they're home watching the game the way the rest of us are. They're a specific and unique designation within the team and allows some players to kind of keep their NFL dreams alive. But the interesting thing is the reasons why, this, why NFL teams keep a practice squad. And there's actually a number of reasons, and I'm not going to get into all of them because they don't relate. But one of the reasons they do is because throughout the weeks, as teams are practicing, as starters are practicing, as the stars that we watch every Sunday are getting ready, they need bodies in uniform to practice against. They need a squad on the other side so as, they're going, you know, as, as the Bucks are getting ready to play the Falcons that they can simulate what the Falcons are going to do. They need somebody to offer resistance. That's basically the significant. The practice squad is there because if they get hurt, it's not a significant loss to the team. I mean, that sounds harsh, but that's the reality. They can put live bodies up against starting offenses and starting defenses for the sake of practice. Because here's what's true. We get better physically, athletically, when we meet resistance, when we have to push through resistance. A team can practice an offense with nobody across the way. They can walk through their their plays. They can can run through their blocking assignments. Receivers can do their routes. Running backs can run to the hole. Quarterbacks can throw their passes. But they get better when somebody's pushing back, when they have to work for it, if you will. And that is true athletically. It's true in, in a number of sports, boxing or has sparring partners. I mean, in, in, in any avenue. And I think in most aspects of life, resistance strengthens and betters us. And my point is, what is true athletically, what is true physically, is also true intellectually and spiritually. That very often we become sharpened, as, as the purpose, iron sharpens iron. We become sharpened when we have a chance to, to push through or to meet, if you will, a little bit of pushback. It's the process of debate in high schools or the opportunity to kind of argue points and counterpoints is that we get better through that exercise. And the significance, what I'm, what I'm wanting us to understand is what's true here was, has always been true. And that was a, a recognition in the Jewish rabbinic tradition. The tradition of the rabbis was that when rabbis taught, they often gave an invitation to their students or to other rabbis to push back against their arguments. The the Jewish literature throughout the centuries from before the time of Jesus is filled with the written works of rabbis who literally um, debate back and forth, who make points and counterpoints as they try to understand the law of God, as they try to understand the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And there's a famous uh, exchange in the medieval times between two well-known rabbis of the day in which they go back and forth arguing this point. Is the belief in one true God one of the 613 laws of the Torah or is it the law in which those 613 rules are founded? Is it one of or is it the foundation? Now, most of you go, really? You know, that's not engaging many of you right now. I can look by the blank stairs, Okay. But the point is, that's, that's the way that, that they, they understood learning happened. It wasn't quite as static as we often imagine it or, or remember it being with somebody like we're doing right now, up talking and everybody listening, or a teacher talking and students just uh, receiving. It was meant to be a dialogue. It was meant to be engaging. And that was what rabbis would invite their students into. And that is important because that is an underlying principle that I believe helps us begin to understand the story in a deeper and more significant way. This encounter between Jesus and this Syrophoenician woman. Because on its surface, if you really take some time and read it and let the story sink in, this ought to trouble you. Because this is not a picture of the Jesus we normally think of. This is not a picture of the Jesus that we normally imagine. He is coming off, like I said before, Jesus is coming out of this encounter with the Pharisees in which he challenges them because they've lost the heart of the law, which is concern and putting people above principles, if you will, putting love above law, the things that we talked about. They've they've elevated preference and they've lost the priority of God. And in the very next breath, we have this encounter. And I want you to hear again as we kind of walk through it a little at a time. It begins with these words. When Jesus left the place, this is verse 26, He went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Jesus leaves the vicinity of his home. He leaves Jewish territory, if you will. And he enters into a Gentile community. Now, If you, you know, these are church words that we use all the time. Many of you know Jew and Gentile. That makes sense to you. But if it doesn't, here's the basic understanding. Jews and Gentiles. If you were not Jew, you were Gentile. Everybody who wasn't Jewish in in the, the scope of their understanding of God's people was a Gentile. So it was those outside the Jewish faith, the Jewish heritage, the Jewish history. And so Jesus enters into this place, and it says he did not want anyone to know of his presence. Now, this is not rocket science, friends. Why would Jesus go somewhere and not want anybody to know he's there? Why do we go anywhere if and, and hope nobody knows we're there? To watch football. It could be. That's a good answer. Yes, yes. To be left alone be left alone. Jesus wants to withdraw. This is one of those times as I heard one um, commentator talk, he said, Jesus has prayed out, he's preached out, and he's peopled out. And he's empty, and he needs to go and to recharge. Jesus was fully human. So his experience of life is no different than ours. I mean, I'm gonna bet everybody in here has experienced moments when you've been peopled out, or whatever your job may be, whatever that is, you're out. You know, you need your, your family, out. you need to withdraw, you need to recharge, you need to Cowgon, take me away, you know, those kind of moments. And so that's what Jesus needs. And what is true for us is true for Jesus. And that is that life has a weird way of thwarting our plans. And you know this. How many times have you gotten somewhere, maybe home, and you're like, I've got nothing, I just need to rest. You lay down you sit in your favorite chair, whatever it is, and as soon as you get comfortable, as soon as the eyes start to close for the needed nap, the phone rings. The doorbell rings. Parents, Mom! Can you come here? And I'm very glad that's usually Mom, because I'm Dad, so I can usually push that off. But, but those kind of things, life has a way of, of intruding on our plans. And, and we have those moments where we respond in love, but very often there's other thoughts that are going through our head. And we just want a, a break. And that's where Jesus is. And just like us is exactly what happens to him. The very next phrase in that first verse, yet he could not keep his presence a secret. He could not keep his presence a secret. And so this woman comes to him. This Gentile woman comes and she breaks... Three significant social protocols. She breaks three cultural boundaries in this encounter that we may not be initially sensitive to because our culture is so much different. But the first thing she does is she is a Gentile woman who is approaching a Jewish teacher. Gentile and Jew. They did not mix well. The early church in Acts will struggle with this. How do we understand a church that's for both Jews and Gentiles when Jews and Gentiles historically did not play well together? And so they did not often um, intermingle, if you will, and converse. So social faux pas, number one, is the Gentile approaches the Jewish teacher. Number two, and this is the most significant, she's a Gentile woman. And in the culture of the day, a woman did not approach a man. You didn't initiate conversation with one that was not your husband. And so this Gentile, outside the Jewish faith, woman comes to this rabbi and this teacher. And the third protocol here is that she intrudes. He wants the break. He wants the withdrawal. He wants to be left alone. And she kind of forces her way in and falls down at his feet. And if you understand that context, and if we were to stop there, you may expect, as some of us might react if we were in that situation, for Jesus to just say, I need you to go away right now. I need you to leave me alone. This is my time. This is my space. This is my moment. And to push her aside. But he doesn't do that. But what he says, on its surface is equally as troubling. I want you to hear again verse 27. She falls down at his feet and she begs him to heal her daughter. The words, a daughter, her little girl who was possessed by an unclean spirit. That was the way that they understood. An, that could be a number of things. It could be a physical illness. could be a mental illness. We don't know exactly what that spirit caused, but that was how they understood many of the afflictions of the day. In other words, her little girl is sick. And she comes to Jesus because she believes he can heal her. And he says, would you heal my, or she says, would you heal my daughter? And this is what Jesus says. First, let the children eat all they want. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Let's contextualize this. Who are the children that he's referring to? Do you know? It's the Jews. Who are the dogs that he's referring to? The Gentiles. Now, if you are like me, that is not a very Jesus-like comment that we expect. That is not a word that we would expect Jesus to speak. He's basically saying, my ministry, my mission, my call is to my people. And why should I use the gifts I've brought for the Jewish people on the Gentiles? Why should I take the children's bread and give it to the dogs? Now, The Greek word there for dogs speaks more to um, baby puppies. It would almost be our word for puppies. And we wrestle with that because we think, okay, that softens it up. But really, okay, seriously, puppy, dog, in other words, it sounds so dismissive. It sounds so anti-Jesus. It sounds so opposite of what Jesus has just been talking about to the Pharisees that if you're really reading and paying attention, that ought to unsettle you. It unsettles me. And so I begin to think, okay, there's one of two options here. Either Jesus isn't who we thought he was. Jesus isn't who we expect him to be. And in many ways, he's not. He's not Mr. Rogers. We create Mr. Rogers Jesus, but that's not who he was. Or, maybe it's an and or, there's something a little bit more significant going on. So let's assume that maybe there's something a little more significant than what we see at the surface. I had two conversations this weekend that would be very interesting if I could um, give you transcripts. Two phone conversations. If I could give you a typed out transcript of these two conversations, it would be interesting the way that you would read and the assumptions you'd make about my relationship with the people I was talking to. The first transcript would be a conversation I had with my brother on Friday. Now, if you were to read that transcript and you didn't know who the two people were, and you'll read the word-for-word account of that conversation, I'm really confident you would assume that the two people talking to each other did not like each other at all. (laughs) Because there's a lot of um, snarky comments, there's a lot of um, seemingly insults that get traded when my brother calls, my standard answer of the phone, because you have caller ID nowadays, is what do you want? That's generally how our conversations begin. And the banter goes on as we trade barbs back and forth. But if you read that statically, you didn't know that there was a little bit of sarcasm in there. You didn't know that my brother and I, and both my brothers are two of my closest friends, and and that there is a a bond that that brothers share between us. You would think that that we don't like each other. Now, conversation number two, also on Friday night, was a response to about the 20th phone call that we have received in the last week in our household from a number with the area code 702, which is the Nevada number. Twi- I'm telling you, four or five times a day, this number is called. We finally had three conversations. Normally, I don't answer the phone when they're kind of these kind of area codes that I know are not local. But it got to be ridiculous enough that we answered the phone. I had two of the conversations. Tony had one. Each time, same phone number. Each time, different person trying to sell us a different product based on an online order we made for stuff we never made an online order for. We've asked them to take us off the call list. We've reminded them we're not on the do not call list. One night, they called it 1020, in which I answered, what do you want? It's 1020, and they hung up the phone. Now, if you had the transcript of that conversation, at the surface, it would seem polite enough. There were no ugly words used. There was no insults given. But if you could hear the inflection in the voice, you would know that it was not a happy conversation because we are about up to here with these phone calls. Here's my point. Words are flat. Words are, are flat. We don't... And we can't see and and internalize the context, the inflection, the facial expressions. These words are incredibly difficult for us to comprehend that Jesus speaks. But it is very possible, and I dare say probable, that what Jesus is doing is much deeper than it appears. And that what Jesus is offering is an invitation N.T. Wright is a biblical scholar, and he believes that right here, what Jesus is doing is giving teasing banter. And he is inviting this woman, this Gentile woman, into an experience that is forbidden for Gentile women. He's inviting her into the pushback of teacher and student, into the relationship of point and counterpoint. And so N.T. Wright imagines with a little bit of a of a gleam in his eye and a sly sly smile on his face and imagine how that context would change the way we read the words. Jesus says to her when she asks for the healing, why should what is for the children be given to the dogs? And he is inviting her in to the dynamics of a relationship in that very, very moment. And the significant thing is she doesn't miss a beat. There's no account that she's startled by that. There's no account that she's offended by that. There's no account that she's angry by that. But rather, she instantly responds with an incredible comeback. She pushes back on Jesus. I want you to catch this. She's Pushing back on Jesus. Jesus says, why should what is for the children be given to the dogs? And her response is, yes, but even the crumbs that fall from the children's table are available for the dogs. The dogs eat what falls from the table. Isn't something still available for those who are outside the circle of the Jewish people? She enters into the dynamics of a relationship that is not one-sided but that allows for the back and forth. And what she's doing is she is living into an example that we see over and over in the Scriptures. She's following a pattern that we see right at the beginning of the story in Genesis. She doesn't know Jesus is a Savior. She doesn't understand the divinity, the divinity of Jesus. But we see this kind of pattern over and over. In Genesis chapter 18, there's a story of Abraham who's visited by the angels. And Abraham is told from the mouth of God that the city of Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be destroyed unless 50 righteous people can be found. And if you know the story, we begin to see a pattern of pushback. We begin to see a pattern of sparring between Abraham and God, in which God says, 50 people. If I find 50, I'll spare the city. And Abraham says, great, that's wonderful, God. But hey, how about 40 and God says, okay, 40. And Abraham says, thanks, God, that's very generous of you, but how about 30? God says, okay, 30. Great, God, thank you so much. You know what? Wait a minute, before we're done here, how about 20? And he gets it down to 10, 10 people. You now, the sad part of the story is they couldn't find them. But the point is, Abraham doesn't just sit back, he engages God. It's a dynamic relationship. If you go to Genesis chapter 32, we sang uh, the song about Jacob this morning. Jacob is pictured in Genesis 32, the encounter, so that he wrestled with God. It's painted in a physical confrontation. Jacob and God wrestle throughout the night. Exodus chapter 3, God appears to Moses at the burning bush. The famous story of Moses at the burning bush. It's it's, It's a verbal spar. It's a joust. Moses constantly pushes back on God. God says, Moses, I've chosen you to deliver my people. And Moses says, uh-uh, not so much, not me. Thanks, but no thanks, I'm good. And it goes over, and I mean, for an entire chapter, we see God call Moses, and Moses say, no thanks. And God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. And Moses says, pick somebody else. And God says, you're going to be my deliverer. And Moses says, I'm not qualified. Back and forth it goes. We see this pattern. Gideon does it in Judges When he's called to deliver the people, he uses fleece and the morning dew to to kind of give God a little bit of a test, to push back a little bit. The prophets do it in the Old Testament. Habakkuk, the entire book of Habakkuk is a joust with God. And John read from Psalm 13 this morning, God, how long will you forget me? What we see over and over in the Scriptures is God giving us an invitation into an authentic relationship that is like every relationship we know that encounters a little bit of back and forth, that God allows us to be sharpened in our faith through the invitation to push back, to be honest, to be authentic, to be real. And too often we discount that value in our relationship with God because somehow we feel that we're offending God. I want you to hear that if the Scriptures give us an example that God invites us into honest prayer, into honest transparency, into honest emotion. Being frustrated, questioning, uncertain, even dare I say, a little bit angry is not out of bounds because it's honest and it allows us to begin to be open. God see that's why it's a value as long as we don't use it to shut God out because we're being honest and God begins to speak into the midst of those emotions and that raw honesty in Psalm 13 again did you catch how quick the scripture transitions from the lament of God how long will you forget me to but I will trust in you because in the honest and raw moments of prayer The psalmist begins to hear the response of God. God speaks into those moments in our lives just as he does when everything's great and we're happy and we're full of joy. God is present in both those places. Jesus gives this woman an invitation to push back. And when the answer that Jesus gives isn't what she wants to hear, she pushes back and reminds us the second truth is that the pushback with God The honesty with God, the transparency with God, even the frustration with God is still an act of faith because we're engaging our Heavenly Father. And even faith that is hanging by a thread is faith that God can use and work through, the faith that God can engage and strengthen us in. The point is we just sometimes, we kind of whitewash the relationship with God because we think Faith isn't about that kind of honest, raw emotion. The scriptures tell us otherwise. It, it was funny. We were sitting here, and as John was inviting us to prayer, Jenny, I hope I don't embarrass you here. But as we're sitting there, we're, John says, I want to invite you to prayer. And Jenny cracked her knuckles right next to me. And I thought, oh, that's perfect. Because how many times do we think of prayer and engagement with God as a chance to kind of crack our knuckles for the, for the engagement you know, for the, for the banter. And again, I'm not talking about disrespecting God. Understand. See, when we hear push back, we think of talk back. You know, the way a teenager disrespects his or her parents. Or the way we probably disrespected our parents at one point or another. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking just honest prayer with God. Honest invitation that God gives us to be real and to be open and to be authentic and to be genuine before Him. It sounds silly because we know God knows our hearts. But how often do we, even with God, put on the facade because somehow we need to be pious and we need to be proper and we need to be righteous? Well, I'm here to tell you righteousness is honesty with God, and that's part of prayer. God invites us to the pushback. The woman is blessed in that. Healing happens. But I think Jesus is blessed too. I think when she walked, Jesus had a smile. In fact, it's interesting that in Matthew chapter 15, the same story is told, but Matthew adds a little... Um, line that Mark doesn't include. It says that when she answered Jesus and said, do not even the dogs eat the crumbs under the children's table, that Jesus looked at her and said, great is your faith. Great is your faith in your trust and your willingness to engage the relationship. Friends, hear this. Be honest with God. Be open with God. Allow God to work in that. When life is wonderful and when you're not sure what's going on. Like Psalm 13, honest prayers before God. Hear God's invitation to the pushback, to the relationship. Because I'm telling you, God works in those places as powerfully as he does anywhere else. If we are willing to hear and to listen. Let's pray. Lord, help us to internalize the invitation you give. To the relationship, to your presence, to your love. To to the banter of faith, because in those places you speak to us. Help us to hear. We pray in Christ. Amen.